We are in a new study, a new series this summer. We like to take a break from our expository preaching. Uh, We're in the gospel according to John. We've been there about 10 months. The invisible made visible, a verse-by-verse study through that gospel account. Expository preach is what we basically do here. But we like to take breaks around holidays, maybe in the summertime. And this summer we're doing a series called, Did God Really Say That? Uh, Seven well-intended instructions and simple cliches that people often say, but the question we are asking, did God really say that? Uh, The first one we looked at, did God really say that he will, you know, that God won't give you more than you can handle? We hear that all the time. And if you're of the age past diapers, you recognize that's not true. (laughs) Last week we did, did God say he helps those who help themselves? Well, that didn't come from the Bible, actually, and taken literally, it can promote self-reliance. It's the opposite of what the Bible teaches, and applied to the gospel, it's really antithetical to it. We can't save ourselves. It's by the mercy and grace and kindness and love of God. This week, there's a new cliche, advice, or instruction. I could, I could almost say a popular belief. Let's look at it as, again, ask the question, did God really say that? Hit the lights and... Hey everyone, and welcome back to The Really Late Show. I'm your host, Jimmy Stevens, and we have a very special guest, Academy Award winning actor for his work in the latest Highlander reboot. We got Tad McPherson. Hey, how you doing, baby? It is great to have you hey, it's on great, the show. Hey, it's great to be on the show, really. You're Appreciate blowing it. up right now. I, get, I don't know. It seemed like come out of nowhere, really. I don't know how it happened, but it, it's just a blur. It really did. I... Everybody checks out IMDb these days, right? Yeah. So, so I'm like, Tad McPherson. A couple years ago, I had no idea who you are. So I'm scrolling through on, on IMDb, and we got these low-budget films, made-for-TV movies. Yeah. yeah. And then all of a sudden, bam. Blockbuster hit, blockbuster hit, blockbuster hit. It's been a, it's been a wild ride, for sure. I mean, a lot of, a lot of uh, stuff in the early days trying to get here and finally arrived. So I just... It took a little while, but I finally got here. How'd you make the switch from really more of an acting hobby to one of the biggest names in Hollywood? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I get that. I think I get a lot, and uh, I think really what what got me here is and if I if I could be you know if I could speak just honestly. Go ahead. Yeah, just it's just my my Christian faith. Really, I think that's what wow. did it. Yeah. How I mean, how does your your Christian faith? Because there's a lot of Christians in Hollywood, you got your Scientologists in Hollywood. Really, how does faith really help you move from a, a small actor, not not in any demeaning sense for sure, yeah. but crossing over into that big Academy Award winning actor? I, I think it's as I've de- developed my faith over the years and, and come to understand really what what I'm here for. Like, what's the purpose of being here on Earth? And, and it's kind of pushed me forward. And I think it can be summed up in... Just saying that God wants me to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. <laughs> what do you say? <laughs> great. That was absolutely awesome. Well, did God really say that? Here's what I want to do this morning. 
I want to share with you in our time together um, some of the absurdities of the prosperity gospel known as name it and claim it, word faith movement, positive confession, and other names that it goes by. And as I do, I want to make a couple of things clear. Number one is there are many people in the movement, in this word faith prosperity gospel movement, that are charlatans, con men, con women, and deceivers who prey on the gullible and the naive. Some are not as bad as others, and some teachings aren't always wrong. There's some things that they say that are right. Not everything they say is false. But some of the prosperity gospel we're going to talk about today, when they get off the beaten path and they leave Scripture, they leave the universe in Scripture. I mean, blasphemy is some of the things in which they teach. And it gets me kind of angry, and I'm not going to be yelling too much today, when they promote their garbage to legitimately hurting people, suffering people. Um, people who are feeling hopeless, and along comes this prosperity gospel nonsense and tells them this is your best life now. And and it's always God's will for you to be happy and healthy and wealthy without any regard to holiness, suffering, or adversity. They fly in with their million-dollar jets to places like Soviet Union and Africa, and they sell their garbage, and then they fly out. Just so you know, any theology that would exclude Jesus can't be right. If people are teaching that when you're walking with Jesus, you're walking closely with God, and you're maturing in your faith, that it means that you are to be wealthy and healthy with good relationships, living in victory without pain, without stress, that would exclude Jesus. Whatever you think life is all about and the purpose of life, if, if by definition it excludes God, something's wrong. Jesus had stress, he had trials, he had tribulations, he had broken relationships, and he wasn't this happy in their sense, and what they consider happiness, we'll talk about that. And I would add that being nailed to a cross is not like living in a very healthy way. Number two, although I will mention some of the leaders by name, it is not my intent to personally bash them, but to expose them. That's not what I'm here to go. My, my, I mean, it's important, I think, that we talk about this because there are people that have been caught up into this movement who I consider brothers and sisters in Christ who love Jesus, worship Jesus, but they're simply being allayed, led astray into some of this prosperity garbage. And quite honestly, there are people that are believing some of this stuff that don't really know exactly what they're really saying behind the scenes, and I want to expose them today because we're dealing with this question. And if you're new here, and there's some people that are new here, this is not our regular way of which we do things. Um, we usually talk about what we're for and not what we're against. We're usually in the Scriptures, letting the Scriptures speak, rather than doing a topical sermon. But I think it's important, as we ask the question, did God really say He wants me happy, healthy, and wealthy? Therefore, we must expose this movement that is so bad and so troubling and so harmful Not only for the family of God, but those who aren't Christians. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. And you watch the TV programs and you see these rich, filthy rich con men trying to say, send me your money and I will make sure God blesses you. And you think, if that's what Christianity is about, I want nothing to do with it. It's not what Christianity is about. Number four. I'm not trying to shame or humiliate anybody who bought some of their books, maybe heard some of their sermons, maybe have read some of their stuff. I'm concerned, and I do despise the prosperity gospel, but what I'm 
sharing with you this morning in love is what you need to know about some of the things in which they say. I'm saying this to you as a shepherd who loves you. And yes, it does get me angry when folks like on the TBN network, Paul and Jan Crouch, who just passed away, so obviously she's not healthy and wealthy, or in this world anyway, with their $50 million jet, their mobile home, $100,000 for their dogs, when, when they're asking you to send in their money so you can get a handkerchief or oil or some sort of faith seed that will bring you wealth, and all they're doing is getting more money, more prestige, and more flamboyant living. It does make me rather angry. I stand with not only Jesus, but the Apostle Peter who said this. False prophets also among, arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. That's, that's the desires of the eyes and the lust of the flesh that First John talks about. That is not of this world. They follow their sensualities, and because of them, the way of truth has been blasphemed. And in their greed... They will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and the destruction is not asleep. Does God really say, I want you happy, healthy, and wealthy? Let's define it first. The prosperity gospel teaches that God teaches that God always, the prosperity gospel teaches that God always wants, and his will is always that all believers are to be personally happy, physically healthy, and materially wealthy. That sums it up. There's so much wrong with that statement, and i got to get it all in in three hours, so hopefully we will. (laughs) I must have studied, I don't know how much this week, but I broke it down into three categories. There's, There's several, but I broke it down into three categories, three aspects, three very important foundational central truths of Scripture to expose their lie, okay? It's not great, you know, um, outline, but this is it. Who they claim God is, his sovereignty and his creativity, we're going to talk about that, Jesus' nature and his essence, and then his atonement, his work on the cross, which is the center of the work of Christ. The atonement is key to the gospel. Three very important, that's where we're going, Three very, very, very important aspects of their teaching. So let's look at that. God's sovereignty. The problem with the prosperity gospel word of faith movement is there's a reversal, a reversal of God's creative order and his sovereignty. What they promote and what you hear over and over is that the believer is using God rather than God using the believer. They promote their desire and wills over God's will, God's desire, and God's purposes. Some of them actually would tell you, do not pray and end with, your will be done. Don't ask for, God's will has already been made known. Wealth, health, and prosperity is God's will. Don't pray, it's actually a cop-out when you're sick. A cop-out if you don't have enough money. They claim that it has already been known. Unfortunately, People like Fred Price said, according to your faith, Jesus said, not according to God's will for you, end quote. Of course, James and John in the New Testament have an issue with that. First John 5, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything, what? According to his will, he hears us. James tells us in his book that we don't have, when we ask and we pray, we don't get. Why? Because we ask wrongly to spend it on our own passions, 
The life of a believer, according to Scripture, is a life spent in pursuit of God's will. Not a life in which God is pursuing and bound to us, trying to fulfill our own wills. And the reason that they do this and that the foundation of their belief system, that's not biblical, is that your faith creates reality. You'll hear that over and over again. Kenneth Copeland, all things, including God himself, are subject to this force of faith because it works according to spiritual laws of the universe. Charles Capps, the Lord came unto me saying, if men would believe me, long prayers are not necessary. Just speaking the word will bring you what you desire, God speaking. My creative power is given to man in word form, end quote. So, the ability that you have, you and I have, if you have enough faith to create your own words, your own reality, God's not no longer sovereign. You are. You want cash? Speak it into existence. Create it with your faith-filled words. You want healing? Speak it into existence. Why bother praying? You're sovereign. He's not sovereign. The power is in your name. The power is in your speaking, in your words. You create reality. Psalm 103.19, the Lord has established his thrones in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Kenneth Hagin claims he's received numerous visions as well as up to eight personal visitations from Jesus. The Lord himself, he said, taught me about prosperity. I never read it in a book. I got it directly from heaven. You can have what you say. You can write your own ticket with God. That's the name of his book. And the first step is writing your own ticket with God is say it. You want your own ticket with God? Say it. He says, and say it, and say it. End quote. If anyone claims to have a direct revelation from God in that way, it's only one thing you should do. Run. And we're not talking about the Lord pressed on my heart. We're not, talking about this. we're not talking about that. We're talking about authoritative. I didn't get it. I got new revealed truth from God. Personal visitation run from those kind of people. What they believe is that faith is like the law of gravity. It works the same way. You drop an apple from a tree, it falls and it hits the ground. It's the law of gravity. It happens all the time. Every time you drop something, it falls to the ground. That's the law of gravity. And they take that law of gravity and they say the same thing in the spiritual realm. Okay? So it's some kind of faith that is, is for what Christians have is unbreakable and immutable and unchanging. This impersonal law like gravity. If, if you're going to believe, you've got to get well. You've got to believe that and, and believe creating it, and you'll get money, you'll get wealth, you'll get prosperity. You're acting in faith, and it's a law that has to happen no matter what. If it's God's will or not, it doesn't matter. Whether it's truth or not, it doesn't matter. It's the law, and it's fixed. That's constant in all their books. And I hope you already see the problem. It's not your faith in faith. It's not your faith in faith where your assurance comes from. It's the object of your faith. If it's your faith in your faith, and this law of gravity like that in the law of faith, it assumes that there's something inherent in believing that enacts something in you. It's not the nature of your faith that is effective. It's the object of your faith. Under that theology, their theology, you're sovereign, you create. 
Now, Dr. Keller, Tim Keller, is a great preacher. Uh, he is not part of the prosperity gospel, but in his, he, he's a wonderful preacher of God. In his book called The Reasons for God, he says this, and I think this illustrates it. Imagine, he says, you're on a high cliff and you lose your footing and begin to fall. Just beside you, as you fall, is a branch sticking out on the very edge of the cliff. It is your only hope, and it is more than strong enough to support your weight. How can it save you? He says, if your mind is filled with intellectual certainty that the branch can support you, but you don't actually reach out and grab it, you are lost. If your mind is instead filled with doubts and uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and you grab it anyway, you are saved. Why? It is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. It is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you, end quote. That's a great illustration. That is a great illustration. The prosperity gospel claims this force of faith works in this spiritual way with, with those laws of the universe, and what you do is you switch the role of who is sovereign. Also, they claim in this that God has... Some of this stuff is, I don't want to laugh, but some of this stuff is so crazy that because he created us in his image and likeness in the Imago Dei, Christians are now for little gods. For instance, Kenneth Copeland, you're all God. You don't have a God living in you, you are one. When I read in the Bible where God tells Moses, Exodus 3, we've been talking about that with John, I am, I say I am too, end quote. We've been studying the gospel according to John this past nine months. And the I am statements, have we seen many of them, we, we've gone through many of them, some with a predicate, some without it, is the unique claim of the God-man himself, Jesus. And when you apply that statement, what God revealed himself to Moses in Genesis 3, and that Jesus makes that claim for himself, if you make that to yourself, that's blasphemous. They love to quote Psalm 82.6. A psalm says, I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. That's what the psalm says. But they don't read the next verse. Here's what the next verse. Nevertheless, like men, you will die and fall like any prince. Leave that part out. The psalm is a psalm of judgment. God had placed judges and the people of Israel in place in that country to to act and to respond and to enact his word, his truth, his law. And in a sense, yes, they were acting and, and exercising authority through that God-given authority. It's not that they were divine. They were given and consecrated for a special task, a holy task. But they failed. That's what the psalm is about. And they were judged, and they're going to die. It's actually a psalm of rebuke. Pronouncement of judgment. It's not instruction or recommendation. It's condemnation. Family, I, I, I hate to break this to you, but you're not sovereign. I don't know if that makes you feel better. It makes me feel better. I don't want to be. I can't even get my own life. Never mind everybody else's life. I mean, even three people. Never mind the whole world. Daniel. He, God, does according to his will. Among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Isaiah 49, 46, 
Verse 9, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient of times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. But you know, claiming God-likeness is not old. It didn't start in the 70s or in the 1800s or whatever. It's not that old. It actually started a long time ago. If you read in Isaiah, you'll read this indictment on Satan himself. Chapter 14, verse 13. I will ascend to heaven. This is what got kicked. Satan got kicked out of heaven. He says, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the earth. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. God is sovereign. We don't create. He is creator. Next is the essence of Jesus. Now, you, some of you are probably going to be surprised by this. The prosperity, prosperity gospel teaches that God created human beings in his literal physical image. I think it was Hagen who says God's about six foot, 200 pounds. In his literal physical image as little gods. That's where he created us. But before the fall, excuse me, after the fall, when sin entered the world, humans took on Satan's nature. Now, I, I don't mind be calling, I don't mind you calling me a sinner. I'm okay with that. But I might take into, you know, Satan's nature. I might push your buttons a little bit too far. But anyway, humans took on Satan's nature and lost the ability to call things into existence. In order to correct the problem, Jesus Christ gave up his divinity and became a man, died spiritually, and took on Satan's nature upon himself, went to hell where he was born again and rose from the dead with God's nature. I'm not making that up. So after Jesus rose, he sent forth the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit now makes us little incarnations, little gods. Think I'm crazy? Kenneth Copeland. Jesus gave up his deity and took on Satan's nature in order to die for our sins. Quote. Why didn't Jesus openly proclaim himself as God during his 33 years on earth? That's the question. He did. I don't know what he's talking about. For one single reason. He, did, he hadn't come to earth as a God. He came as a man. The Spirit of God spoke to me. you got to be careful when you hear that. I'm not saying he can't speak today, but man, the Spirit of God spoke to me. He said, a born-again man defeated Satan. The firstborn of many brothers defeated him. He said, you are in the very image and the copy of the first one. I said, goodness gracious sakes alive. I began to see what had gone on in there, and I said, well now, you don't mean, you couldn't dare mean that I, this is Copeland talking, that I, could have done the same thing. God said, oh yeah, if you'd known that, had the knowledge of the word of God that he did, Jesus, he's talking about, you could have done the same thing because you're a reborn man too. Blasphemous. We've been studying John again. Jesus made it pretty clear, man, John 5, 9. Right? He has all the prerogatives, all the privilege, exclusive rights as God himself. John five nineteen. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Whatever the father does, in his holiness, in his perfection, not one single dark spot in him, I do. Who could say that? 
I can't. For as the Father raised the dead, he gives life, so the Son gives life to whom he wills. When was the last time you raised somebody from the dead? They claim it. I don't believe it. The Father judges no one, but is given judgment to the Son. That you may honor the Son as you honor the Father. Truly I say to you, an hour is coming. The dead will hear the voice of who? The Son of God. No dead's going to hear my voice. And those who are here will live, and the Father will give life in himself. He's granted the Son to give life in himself. This coextensive, parallel, equal activity that John is talking about, that gives Jesus the right in creation, giving him the right to extend love and mercy and grace, give life, give judgment, even worship. Just in John 5, does not belong to you and me. The Bible is clear, the historical record is clear, the dual nature of Christ is clear, the God-man like no one else. And yet they malign him and devalue him in order to make their prosperity garbage palatable. What happened with Jesus on the cross? This might get me fired up. Ken Hagen. The trouble is, we're preaching a cross religion. We need to preach a throne religion. I quote, by that I mean that people have thought they were supposed to remain at the cross. We've seen songs like, near the cross, near the cross. Yes, we need to come by the cross for salvation. All right, there's some truth. But we don't need to remain there. Let's go to Pentecost and ascension and to throne. The cross is actually a place of defeat where the resurrection is a place of triumph. When you preach the cross, you're preaching death and you leave people in death, end quote. Really? 1 Corinthians 1.22, the Jews demand signs, Greek wisdom, but we preach what? Christ crucified. Stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, those who are being called both Jew and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Galatians 4.16, far be it from me to boast in anything, some verses say, except in what? The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which I, the world, has been crucified to me and I to the world. They say that when Jesus hung on the cross and he said, it is finished, that was the beginning of, their, of our salvation. It wasn't finished there. Charles Capps right to fully appreciate what Jesus did for you and me, we need to know he went to hell. Received punishment for our sins in hell and obtained redemption for us. You cannot receive eternal redemption by physical sacrifices. Joyce Myers, another prosperity gospel, said this. Not, not everything she says, but this is what she said. During that time, Jesus entered hell, where you and I deserve to go legally because of our sin. He paid the price there. No pain was too extreme. Jesus paid the, on the cross and in hell. God rose up from his throne and said to demons, tormenting the sinless son of God, let him go. Then the resurrection power of Almighty God went through hell and filled Jesus. He was resurrected from the dead, the first born again man. See, see the connection here. You cannot go to heaven unless you believe with all your heart that Jesus took your place in hell, end quote. Unscriptural, completely. Demeans his work, it demeans the Lord, it devalues him as the perfect spotless son of God. First of all, where did the atonement take place? In hell or on the cross? We'll let Jesus decide that. It is finished. It, 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 it's just getting started. No, that's not what he said. First Peter, Christ bore our sins in his body. Verse 24. 
Christ bore our sins. Whoop, can we go back one? Noah? Uh, Joe, I mean, go back one first. First Peter 2.24, that Christ bore our sins in his body in hell. No, on the cross. Colossians 2.13, he canceled the debt of our sin as taking it away and nailing it to the cross. And where did Jesus go after he died? Again, you don't have to answer that question. He already did. He looks at a thief who's hung, he's in the middle, and he looks to the repentant thief who says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You're the king. I recognize that. There's repentance. There's faith. And Jesus said, this day, today, that's the word in Greek, this day, you shall be with me in hell while I'm tormented. This day you shall be with me in paradise. Jesus already answered the question. Some believe maybe he went down as a declaration to all the demonic powers, possibly maybe, but this day you shall be with me in paradise. One of, the, one of the main ideas or thinking is that we need to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And part of the process of that is being healthy. And what they do is, some of the prosperity gospel, one of the main teachings is that they believe that when Jesus atoned for our sins on the cross, he also bought each and every one of us physical healing. That's one of the main teachings of the prosperity gospel, that Jesus went to the cross and he died and guaranteed and secured for us a physical healing in this life. Now, if there's something I want you to remember, it's this. An over-realized eschatology. Okay, and that's a big word. An over-realized eschatology. Eschatology means end times. They over-realize, they put more stock and say what's going to happen today is really meant to happen in the new heavens, new earth, glorified body. They have an over-realized eschatology. To teach someone that we are guaranteed today that you will be healed because of what Jesus did on the cross is to apply what will happen in the future to that which is happening today. We are today, as Paul said, jars of clay. So the question is, did Jesus go to the cross for our sin? or for our sickness, or for both? Is there healing in the atonement? Does the death of Christ guarantee forgiveness of sins in the same way than being delivered from illness? Prosperity gospels say yes. I would claim the Bible is clear and says no. They love to use two verses. Isaiah 53 and 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2 Peter is going back to Isaiah. Isaiah's in the Old Testament. Peter's in the New Testament. Peter is quoting from a psalm, excuse me, from Isaiah known as the suffering servant, Isaiah 53. I have the verses up there. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Surely he has borne, is pointing to Christ, what Christ will do. He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he, Jesus, was pierced, For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us what? Peace. By his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep has gone astray. Everyone turned to his own way. But the Lord laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. It goes on from there. 1 Peter 2.24. Jesus, he himself bore our sins, not sickness, in his body on the tree that we might died to sin, bore our sins, died to sin, and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. Gloria Copeland and the Copeland family believes this. Quote, Jesus bore your sickness and carried your disease at the same time and in the same manner that he bore your sins, end quote. First of all, if that was true, none of us would die. 
It's really that simple. Or Jesus failed or we failed. You get yourself in a, in a, a, a bad place, okay? The context is clear in Isaiah. He was pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. The iniquity that we deserve was laid upon him. He's talking about being guilty, the guilt of our sin, declaring that the guilt of our sin was imputed to Jesus. He bore our guilt and he was punished in our place and now we have peace with God. There's no guilt in sickness. There's no guilt in sickness or disease. Having cancer or the flu is not sinful according to Scripture. The Bible tells us to pray for our trespasses, right? Commands us to confess our sins one to another. Nowhere does it says, Lord, forgive me of my hernia. Lord, I confess I had the chicken pox. Forgive me. It doesn't say that. Of course, all sickness came with the sin of Adam. It's the result of sin. God created the world, Genesis 1 and 2. They don't want to get past Genesis 3 where sin entered into the world, brokenness, tornadoes, and all the things that are corrupted in this world, including sin. Adam fall did introduce corruption and death into the human race. But it does not mean that every time we are sick, it's because some specific sin and guilt that we have committed. We don't repent of having kidney stones. We don't come under conviction for having a sore throat. Lord, I'm so sorry. You know? By his wounds, Isaiah said. First of all, the word wounds in the Greek and in the Septuagint means flogging and scars. It was what Jesus did for us on his way to Calvary. It's part of the atonement of dying in our place. Not talking about physical healing. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Now, just so you know, I'm going to be fair. The word griefs can be translated and is translated disease and sickness. So some would translate it and say, he bore our sickness and carried our sorrows. The Hebrew word there can be used both. Griefs and sorrows or sickness or diseases. It's used both in scripture. I'm going to be honest. It's used both in scripture. It depends on the context. Okay, it depends on the context. Isaiah 53, and especially in 1 Peter, as he takes that text and applies it to the work of Christ, is very clear, referring to spiritual healing, not physical healing. He bore our sins on his body, on the cross. That's the sin that we deserve. He did that for us, that we might die to sickness. No, die to sin and live for righteousness. The whole context of 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter has to do with suffering wrong, suffering wrongly. Not so that we can be healed completely. So that's the verses they love to use. Let me see what I... That's the verse they love to use. One more verse I want to use, okay? I don't know if I have it on here. Uh, no, I don't. Okay, but Matthew 8. Matthew is, is writing his gospel account of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is walking around and he's healing people. And it says in Matthew 8, verse 16 and 17, it was done that the healing that Jesus was doing, it was done so that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He took our illness and he bore our diseases. They say, see, there you have it. Well, again, keep it in its context. It's not, the context is not the atonement. The context is not the atonement. He's talking about while the Messiah was walking on this earth, the way in which you would know it was him, the work that he did was proof positive. It authenticated his ministry as he was going around and, and bringing in, ushering in at least a glimpse of the kingdom to come. 
He was healing diseases. He was giving sight to the blind. There's going to be no disease and sickness in the new heaven and new earth. And here comes King Jesus ushering in his kingdom in the already at the moment, but not totally yet. Obviously, we're going to die. There's still brokenness in this world. But he's ushering in this kingdom, and he's doing these works showing what the kingdom will be like. It is true that when Jesus came to earth, the healing he did is, was pointers to the in-breaking kingdom. But it's a different story when you demand and expect everyone to be healed this side of eternity. When that is for the future aspects of the kingdom, where there's no more sickness and disease. If, as I said, if physical healing on the atonement gives and guarantees, no Christian then would be sick. And no one would die, which, you know... Death is being sick. Like, you're going to get sick. I- I'm sorry to tell you that. I mean, I'm hoping, you know, you're probably going, well, I hope I'm around 80 or 90. All right, but you're not going to die in perfect health. It's because you're sick that you die. I don't know how, that's, it's pretty, pretty clear. Okay, so we're going to move on. And it's just two other people I want to mention because I would, I would be wrong not mention. That's my, my, one of my favorite, and I mean that sarcastically, if you watch The Big Bang, Bazinga. Uh, Joel Osteen, your best life now. If this is your best life now, I don't know where you're going after here. Because this is not my best life now. I'm hoping to be with Jesus. That would be a much better life than now. So maybe someplace else you're going, I don't know. This is not my best life now. He's another one, create your reality with your faith. Write it down and, 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 and declare it. You'll never hear them say, brokenness and humility and holiness and suffering, bringing glory to God. You'll never hear that, right? You'll never hear that. What you'll hear is this. There's no suffering and trials. None of that will, will, you know, everything that we go through, he won't say. This is what he says. See if you can relate to this family, okay? If you say, you know, that's my life, let me know. If you develop an image of success, health, abundance, joy, peace, happiness, nothing on this earth will be able to hold those things from you. Dream it, believe it, speak it, right? All of us are born with earthly greatness. You were born to win. God wants you to live in abundance. You were born a champion. I wasn't a champion of anything. I I don't know. He wants you to give you the desires of your heart. In fact, before you were formed, he prepared us to live in an abundant life, to be happy, healthy, and whole. Get your thinking positive. And he will bring your desires to pass, your desires to pass. He regards you as a strong, courageous, successful person. You're on your way to a new level of glory. Just click your heels two times, you know. <laughs> Believe, visualize, and speak out loud. That's, that's paganism. That's not Christianity. And he says, I know these principles work because me and my wife put them into practice. And look at all that we have. Right? It's a Ponzi scheme. Of course those at the top are going to be rich. Everybody else isn't. It's not like everybody in their congregation flies in with, they have a jet launch pad outside of the church. And everyone who comes to church drives their jet. That's not what happens. They're making the money. They're making the money. And I couldn't, I, I would be remiss not to mention jet extraordinaire Creflo Dollar. He's really blatant. As the righteousness of God, your inheritance of wealth, he writes, and riches is included in the spiritual blessings that Paul wrote in Ephesians 1. I can't see that. You have every right to possess material wealth, clothes, jewelry, houses, cars, money, and abundance. The Bible says wealth is stored up in righteousness. In Proverbs, it does. However, he says it will remain stored up until you claim it. 
Therefore, claim it now. You possess the ability to seize and command wealth and riches to come to you. Exercise that power by speaking faith-filled words daily and taking practical steps to eradicate debt. Like God, like God, you can speak spiritual blessings into existence, end quote. Of course, this happens by only one way. Send your seed money into clefeldollar.com. You know what I mean? Send me the seed money and all this will be yours. Terrible. I'm, I could go all over the Bible, but I won't. Listen. Paul writing to Timothy. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up and conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversies and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, depraved in truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with those, we will be content. But those who desire what? To be rich. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptations, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But for you, O man of God, flee those things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Here's the truth. God wants us to be happy. I'll use the word joy from now on, but God wants the joy that we have in him to be just that, in him. Not in stuff that is fleeting and not in circumstances that are changing, happenstance, happiness. So often when you hear, and I hear it as a pastor, God wants me to, happy, to be happy, it's an indicator. I, my flag goes right up that they must want to find their happiness outside the clear command according to Scripture. People say, whatever makes me happy must be right. God wants me to be happy, and I'm not happy, and therefore i got to find my happiness. And if you're asking me to do something that is not going to make me happy, it must not be the will of God. That's what I hear. How many relationships have been terminated, marriages that have been terminated, simply because God wants me happy? I'm arguing today that God wants you to have joy, deep abiding joy. I will go so far to say that you are commanded in Scripture to pursue joy with all your heart if it is in God himself, not in things. It's a God-centered joy. Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Trust him, love him, pursue him, uh, cling to him. His beauty, his, his incalculable worth, and his desires joyfully become your desires, not the other way around. Psalm 32, be glad in the Lord. Philippians 1, rejoice in the Lord. 1 Thessalonians, rejoice always in the Lord. Romans 12, do your acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Psalm 100, serve the Lord with gladness. The problem, family, is when we talk about happy, healthy, and wealthy, is that the world is not in pursuit of the worship of God, obedience to God, treasuring of the beauty of Christ. 
Yes, God is more interested in character than our comfort or our obedience more so than uh, our personal pleasure. But I will submit to you this morning, according to Scripture, that God created us in his Imago Dei as worshipers. And that when God created us as worshipers, we then at that point, the eternal everlasting joy that we can have in him is unshakable, even in the midst of sorrow and brokenness. We all have it in our lives. But if it's rooted in the command to find the joy, to rejoice in the Lord by making much of him, by glorifying him. I'm saying as we pursue God, his glory, his incalculable worth and beauty, joy is a byproduct of that. And that's why God says, worship me, glorify me. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Colossians 3, whatever you do, word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord God, giving thanks to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. The worship of God, listen, is infinitely worthy and glorious God that he is, will well up as a genuine, uncircumstantial joy. And then when you're going through hard times, you're going through difficulties, it's not the things of this world that will give you that joy. It's not you trying to be a champion when you just got knocked on your rear end. It's you seeking the face of God and recognizing your relationship with him. He gets the glory, we get the joy. John Piper says this, God's overflowing joy in his own glory is the root and basis of our joy in his own glory. God is so exuberant about his glory that he makes it to display the goal of all he does. Therefore, so should we, end quote. So it's, it's confusing if we say God wants us happy and then there's obedience over here. So you have a choice to make. But I believe the Lord, what the Bible tells us is that we have to seek the face of God his kingdom, his righteousness, his beauty, his worth, his value, his glory, and joy is the byproduct of that. That's what I'm arguing. And when it comes to sickness, you know, there, let, me just, let me just say this, and then we're going to move on. There's a difference between finding joy in the things of this world that will not last and the things of God, and he'll never leave you nor forsake you, okay? So, Life for the believer is caught in this tension between the already and the not yet. Now, when it comes to being healthy and wealthy, I don't have much time left, but let me just say a couple of things. Life for the believer, again, is walking through this brokenness of the world in hope of the glorious time and place will be with Jesus. Did Jesus accomplish on the cross our healing? Absolutely, spiritually, we are, sin has been paid for, the guilt has been removed, we're in relationship with God. Is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, ascension bring physical healing? Absolutely. When he comes back again, establishes the kingdom, there will be no more disease, no more sickness. It's different, though, than trying to, trying to manipulate God and to twist your words and to try to somehow to catch him being healed. Some of you have never been sick. Praise God. Some of you have good health and wealth and, and prosperity. Praise God. But in Scripture, that's not everybody. He, Paul wasn't healed. He prayed three times. Elijah died of an illness. Isaac and Jacob, they're spiritually strong people. Timothy is told he had frequent illnesses. Paul prayed often for his healing. And you know what? He never got healed. The prosperity gospel proponents claim that God does not receive glory. Unless you're healed. And I'm here to tell you that that's mean. That's wrong and mean and, and hard. When you tell somebody who's praying for their sickness and praying and, and suffering and you say, you just don't have enough faith, that's cruel. That's straight up cruel. 
Do we pray for healing? Yes, we've seen healing here in this church. We anoint people, pray over people. We believe God heals. But we also believe that God chooses not to. And he's sovereign, we are not. Something's going to catch up with us sooner or later, right? So, yes, God wants us to be joyful in him. Yes, God does and can heal and we should pray. But it's an over-realized eschatology to believe that God heals everyone now because all of us are going to die. Can't be true. Lastly, we talk about... (laughs) Yeah, never mind, okay. I mean, Jesus was nailed to a cross... Like, Jesus, you didn't pray hard enough. Like, that was excruciating. His beard was ripped. Like, he had all kinds of physical pain in his life. But okay. Anyway, I just had to say that. Lastly, riches. Were there people in the Bible that were rich? Absolutely. Abraham, uh, Solomon, King David, man of great wealth. Jesus said... Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to go to heaven. You can't serve God and money. Okay, so are there people rich? Absolutely, but all you have to remember is very, very simple when it comes to wealth. Okay, very, very simple actually. There are the righteous people who are rich. There are those who God has bestowed blessing and prosperity upon that is biblically and right. And you could tell because they love serving others, blessing others. They don't cling to money. They don't put their trust in money. They don't manipulate others for the money. They're the righteous rich. They, they pour out their blessing on other people. They demonstrate and declare the gospel in their generosity. There is also the unrighteous rich. The ones that we're talking about, they're selfish and they're greedy and they're uncaring. They twist God's word. They say things that he hasn't said. And they build these bigger store barns so that they could say, look at all the work I've done. And Jesus tells them, really? <laughs> Fool, this night is required of you, Luke. And things you've prepared, who will they go to? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and not rich towards God. The greedy prosperity gospel teaches promote and encourage the pursuit of money, the pursuit of things, the lust of the eyes, everything 1 John 2 talks about, the pride of life, pursue those things. Don't get me wrong, you could be poor and unrighteous too. You could be poor and unrighteous, you could have not a dime in your pocket, but your love of money has overcome you. And you could be poor and righteous, just looking to bless people as you can. So it's not about how money you have in your pocket. The matter is how much you hold tightly to it and how much you try to get from others to, so that you can line your pocket. I praise God for those of you who have money and, and looking to financially support and, and, and work toward you know, building God's kingdom and want to be used of God. We need people like that, but that's a different story what we're talking about here in the prosperity gospel. Walking with Jesus is not lollipops and skipping rope and singing hymns all day. Many of you know that. Been through hard times, struggling, suffering, brokenness, chronic pain. Some of you have been a victim of, of hard times, of other people's sin. Jesus was. He was beaten and, and, and he was, had false trial, false everything, and they nailed him to a cross. And the problem with it, and I'll end with this. The problem with this, family, listen. The problem with this whole crap that's being poured out of this prosperity gospel is this. When you don't get what you claim... You will say, where were you, God? If you don't get the prosperity that's been promised you, if you're suffering, where are you, God, in this suffering? If we, if we are hurting or we have, we've been victimized, where were you, God? I've been promised this bill of goods. Where were you? 
I thought I was supposed to be a winner, a champion. And I'm hurting right now. I feel like a loser, not a champion. Where are you, God? He suffered a cruel, brutal death. He took on humanity, left heaven's glory, was subject to this world, was hated, abused, mocked, spit on, nailed to a cross, and hung there to die for your sin. That's where he is. Resurrected and wants to be not only with you, the one suffering, but in you, receiving all the glory as you trust in him, not cars. I mean, what's our inheritance? It's not cars, not property, not houses, not jets, not boats. It's not health, wealth, and happiness. It's forgiveness. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's reconciling relationship, sinner, and holiness through the cross of Christ. It is God himself that is great wealth. It is God himself that is great wealth. You get God. That's it. He is what you need. He is what you're lacking. He heals the brokenness inside of you. You need to be reconciled with your creator. Serving, loving, treasuring, worshiping, serving a slave to Christ. Seeking him, seeking his glory, seeking his will. Seeking him as the highest treasure brings great joy in the midst of all the things we go through. In the midst of pain and failure and brokenness and loss. And let me tell you. That is far more worthy and far more of worth than anything this world can offer you. So I'm not saying let's walk around with a cloud over our head. I'm saying treasure Christ above all earthly treasures. Don't get caught up in that nonsense. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. You have blessed us in many blessings, Lord. I mean, just living here in America, I find myself even preaching on this prosperity nonsense, and I find myself, even me, I, I could speak about myself, living in, living in ease and, and not being as generous as I ought to be. So, Father, we ask that you would do a great work in our hearts, that we would treasure you, that we would be generous and loving and kind and not hold on to the things of this world, not chase the things of this world, but chase you, pursue you, and have joy in you. That's unshakable in all the things that we could possibly go through. And then, Lord, help us to have hope, hope in the new kingdom, the new home, the new heavens, where Jesus will be, our great God and our great Savior. And Father, thank you. And maybe there's someone here that has never really heard the truth of the gospel, that we are sinful, that we are broken, that we are rebellious and run from you. We want our own ways, our own wills, and it leads to destruction. That, Lord, we need to turn from our sin and turn and trust you as our greatest treasure, the one who loves us, Jesus, the one who died for us, so that we can have forgiveness of sins, be a new creation, be given the Holy Spirit, and Lord, give you glory in it all. Help us as we respond, as we sing. Have your way.